In a world filled with information, where do you turn to get straight talk about retirement, investments, and your money? Lock it in to the longest-running financial talk show in Arkansas and let us help you build the bridge between information and application. Real financial change begins right here, and it starts with you. It's showtime! Well, markets are certainly volatile in 2022, but what about the health of the economy? LPL Financial's Chief Economist Jeff Roach joins us, plus defining what financial independence means for you and how to achieve it. This is the Get Ready for the Future show. Hi, everybody, and welcome on live stream, on radio, on podcast. It is the Get Ready for the Future show. My name is Scott Inman, along with me, John Shrewsbury. And Tim Key, who works with me here in the West Little Rock office. Good morning to both of you. Good morning, good sir. Morning. Everything going okay on your day so far? Well, so far, so good. Uh, the The summer heat has set in, and <laughs> uh, I think everybody kind of has that uh, that slow summer doldrum beginning to set in just a little bit. You know, the 4th of July is kind of like Christmas for me in, in the weather department. I want a white Christmas, I want snow, and then I'm ready for it to warm up. I'm done with winter after Christmas. The 4th of July is kind of like that for me. I'm good with the heat. I'm ready with the fireworks. I'm ready for the pool. And then it hits 100 for about two months here, and, I'm, and I don't want it. I don't want it anymore. <laughs> well, you know, things are always changing. Just like the yes. economy and the markets, things are always changing. And, yes. and, you know, you never know when you're going to have one of those cool snaps right in the middle of summer. We yeah. have that every once in a while. Yeah, well, we're talking economy today on the Get Ready for the Future show. You know, we talk a lot about the markets, and we talk about the economy. The two are not always linked. We're going to be joined, and we are being joined right now, by LPL Financial's Chief Economist Jeff Roach, who is with us in Charlotte today, which I understand is just about as much of a cooker as it is here in Arkansas, right at uh, triple digits. Good morning and good afternoon to you, Jeff, since you're on the Eastern Time Zone. Absolutely. Well, happy Wednesday. And yes, it is it is dripping weather. That's uh, the way we talk about it here in the Southeast, right? <laughs> yeah, it is absolutely uh, on fire. So we appreciate you joining us today. And I think um, our, our, our goal here today is really kind of paint that picture of, you know, the markets have been down for the first half of 2022, obviously everybody knows that. What's in store for the markets in, in 2022 in the back half of the year could greatly depend on the economic conditions that we have currently and the expectation of where they're going. So let's jump with, jump in, Jeff, if we could, and talk a little recession talk, because obviously that's been a real big buzzword uh, for economists in the last couple of months. A survey back in early June found that a majority of of economists believe that the economy will enter a recession next year, but at that time, very few expected it to happen this year. Now, that was a month ago. Here we are in early July. Where do you land on when slash if a U.S. recession is imminent? Well, I I do think that a, a recession is coming, perhaps not imminent, and and you're exactly right uh, with your referencing in in the uh, beginning remarks about markets, the economy. They don't always paint the same picture. And that is absolutely true, if not even more so the case, you know, when you're talking about a time where, you know, the the economy is shuttered by government uh, statement, government fiat uh, in 2020, and then a reopening process. And, you know, data were very messy. And so, you know, it was very complicated. And I think the markets were saying, you know, we have a Fed starting a, a tightening cycle. And at the same time, you have data that looks strong. 
in historic standards because you know we're in this quote-unquote reopening phase, but underlying weaknesses remain. And so I think the market was just having trouble trying to price in expectations. And, th- and that's the key word, expectations. So where are we now relative to where we're going to be in the next 18 months? I think the fact that it's going to be even more exciting to parse the data because so many people say, you know, recession is two consecutive quarters of negative growth, which is not true, by the way. Mm-hmm. And we actually might see two consecutive quarters of negative growth. Q1 negative, U.S. Q2 could be close to zero. And so we might say, ah, the, the talk uh, among the, the, the pundits these days is, hey, we're in a recession right now. The point is we're not. We're not in a recession now because we have not seen a significant decline in activity spread across multiple sectors of the economy. So, for example, we still have job growth. We still have industrial production rallying. That's something that doesn't get a lot of media attention, but it's very important for the underlying bones and plumbing of the economy. And that's definitely one of the stats that the National Bureau of Economic Research does look at as it defines recession. We're not in one now. We're probably not going to be in one this year, but the likelihood of that recession coming sooner than expected seems to be rising. Um, you, you have the challenge between soft data and hard data. That's what I like to tell our clients. Soft data is survey data. Hard data is actual spending patterns. Hmm. April was still a pretty decent spending month. May, real spending declined. But we're not in a recession yet. Probably not. That's not our base case for 2022. We can talk a lot more about that, but I'll, I'll stop right there for now. So, Jeff, let's let's kind of uh, lift the hood for just a minute. If you look at some of the uh, high-frequency data and compare it, let's say, back to 2019 uh, and look at where we were on things like, uh, you know, things as, as obtuse as movie attendance and uh, rail traffic and things of that nature, things look like that they're about on par with where we were in 2019 prior to COVID. Uh, what is the headwind that's going to, to potentially trigger us into a recession in the next 18 months or so? Yeah, yeah, you, that's that's right. Uh, one of the other higher frequency metrics that I like to look at, in fact, I, I look at it uh, just about every day, looked at it this morning, is uh, TSA throughputs yes. relative mm-hmm. to uh, this period, relative period, you know, from a year ago or two years ago. And And the point is that, you know, airline travel, even during July 4th with all the, <laughs> the warning signs that we saw, you know, across major news outlets, uh, is, is ticking up. Uh, pent up demand is there and people are traveling. Uh, headwinds. I tell you, one of the biggest headwinds that I see that, um, is, is very helpful to track. Again, something that people don't necessarily talk about quite as much, but there are some excellent data on firms and their view on qualified applicants. So, so the NFIB uh, puts out a monthly survey, and right now businesses are still talking about having significant trouble with qualified applicants for their job openings. So the biggest headwind for me, short answer to, to that good question is, you know, firms unable to find qualified workers, if that continues and folks still stay out of the labor force. We still got about 4 million out of the labor force relative to 
pre-pandemic levels. That that's a challenge to me. Uh, that's that's something that that I'm, uh, you know, I I think is worth thinking about, especially when we talk, you know, in the next, you know, five ten years. You know, perhaps we sometimes get so focused on what the market's doing right this very minute, or maybe in the next, you know, few months. But long-term challenge: skill erosion. People don't go back to the the, the workforce. Firms have challenge. Uh, that that's probably one of the biggest headwinds. Um, outside of the, some of the more talked about ones, and, and that is uh, supply bottlenecks that unfortunately are remaining. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Jeff, um, inflation's really grabbed the headlines over the last few months, but it hasn't seemed to slow down consumer spending all that much. And how have we managed to absorb higher prices for such a long time now? And when will corporate profits, profits um, take a hit if we don't see um, inflation ease up a little bit? Right, right. So, you know, going back to Econ 101, prices go up. You know, demand should slow at some point, right? <laughs> that's that's the, the, the bare bones of your question saying, well, how in the world are we, are we seeing this? Rising prices, consumers still spending. And that's exactly the case. I, you know, I think one way to think about it is, you know, you know, you, you like popcorn or, you know, whatever snack of choice is, and you walk into a movie theater or you walk into the ballpark, and you're like, okay, I'm going to, I, you know, I know I'm going to pay, you know, eight times uh, higher than I normally pay, but I, but I still do it. And, and of course, there's a lot of behavioral psychology behind that. I think that's a, a fair analogy in terms of getting to your question. Why are people not slowing down their spending, even though prices are high. There's a little bit of psychology there, and I think there's a little bit of this frustration attitude. Hey, we couldn't, you know, we couldn't travel, we couldn't do stuff in the last year, year and a half, uh, 2021, maybe part of 2021. Um, and I think that's still playing out a little bit. Now, now the follow-up question, I think, is, well, when is that going to stop? Mm. You know, when are people going to say, okay, you know, I took my vacation that I didn't take the last two years and it was so miserable. You know, I'm not going to go anywhere again because, you know, airlines lost my baggage and whatever else. Um, so the follow up question I think is, is equally important is when will they slow down? I think, I think the excess savings that, that there, but three trillion in excess savings is really supporting and bolstering uh, spending, but that's it, not going to last, you know, another, eight to 10 months. So the, so the question will be, uh, you know, as we go into holiday, you know, the holiday sales numbers is extremely important. Before I was at LPL, I was a senior economist for Visa and uh, tracked, you know, spending, of course, uh, in holiday sales was, was really an important harbinger. Uh, but at this point, consumers are thumbing their nose <laughs> at the high prices. Uh, but it, it, it'll eventually hit. And we expect it to, to start showing up, uh, you know, latter half of the year. Jeff, uh, we looked at some inflation numbers before we went on today, uh, and you see a little bit of a divergence. You know, across the board, that number still looks pretty bad, but in certain areas, it is starting to come down. You know, you think about how retailers have been squeezed uh, at the end of the 
second quarter but then the travel industry and all those things uh, airline tickets those things are still booming and the consumer demand almost seems like it's shifting when you look at all that inflation data is there kind of a a light at the end of the tunnel we've been talking about looking for that for so long you know transitory was the word we heard from the fed for so long it's clearly not been transitory but at some point it's got to come down is it doing that and what's kind of the sweet spot for you to say hey we're going to rock on through it if we can get it to here yeah, that's 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 right. Um, there are these diverging patterns between, you know, particularly durable goods. You know, auto prices are moderating. Vehicle, you know, even the auto parts. Um, you know, some of the recreational goods are flat from a year ago. You know, so I I've been tracking RV sales just because it's been such a, a an interesting sector to watch. You know, particularly um, in the last two years. And so I think the fact that we're starting to see some of those raw materials from the producer side, and then that definitely is flowing into the durable goods prices are starting to, to cool. And I think at, the, at this point, you are, we're trying to see, okay, can the consumer make it through this, this summertime peak travel season and, you know, back to school season? Um, and, and the, the, the nagging challenge for I think policymakers and and uh, market watchers are are some of the core items like the food uh, you know gas prices some of those things that you know stick around and and and, and really turn into some frustrating behaviors at this point though uh, durable goods prices the fact that they're monitoring I think is a net positive particularly for for policymakers as they think okay how far do we need to go in, in terms of tightening and how aggressive do we need to be in terms of tightening. And speaking of that tightening, uh, let's talk about the Fed for just a second. Obviously, they have exercised their authority and raised some interest rates pretty aggressively through the first half of the year. Help our listeners to understand how effective or ineffective that lever might be and how much of the actual uh, tightening of the money supply is the Fed going to engage in to try to get the end result that they're looking for. Right, right. So the Fed does have a, a, a few tools in their toolbox. I, I like to say they have very blunt instruments. Um, one of the things that I think you know folks need to think about when when we think about the Fed is, you know, the Fed doesn't have any tools that address uh, supply shocks. You know, their tools, their the blunt sledgehammer that they have, only addresses the demand side. So how to cool down consumer spending, um, how to slow down housing market, for example. And I think they, they have, even in just you know, the, the very beginning stages of their tightening cycle, they've, you know, they've, they've put the, the fear into those prospective buyers, right? Mortgage prices, mortgage rates are, are increasing, finally stabilizing at about the 5.5% level. Uh, on average across the United States uh, for a 30-year fix. But um, they, they are, uh, their, their tools are working in terms of slowing down some sectors of the economy that were pretty hot. I think um, I'm in the camp that housing wasn't necessarily a bubble like it was coming out of the great financial crisis. And, you know, those, those times were, were uh, you know, times you never want to see again. Um, but the fact that, you know, 
the the core underworking of the housing market, including you know lending, et cetera, very different this time around than than the 08 the, to 2011 time period. But we've seen a good uh, I quote I say air quotes you know around a good uh, response in the cooling and housing market. Uh, I think you know they will tighten pretty much across the board. So they'll they'll tighten that target rate, the rate that they that uh, banks charge each other for overnight loans. They will uh, shrink their balance sheet. Again, kind of overall, it's a, it's a thing that needs to happen. So mm-hmm. it's a good thing, in my view, that they're they're shrinking the money supply, shrinking the balance sheet, raising rates. So, so mortgage rates aren't so historically low. Um, but I think, you know, at, at the the inside conversations, by the way, we'll get the minutes from their last meeting um, at two o'clock Eastern uh, today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's going to give us some, some additional insights. But I think, you know, behind closed doors, they're, they're concerned about the fact that their tools are not uh, you know, ad- addressing supply shocks. They're not, they're not capable of doing that. But uh, in some ways, desired, desired effect is yes, housing is cooling. <laughs> the challenge is you got a Russian invasion uh, adding shocks to to commodity prices and, and supply shocks. That's something completely out of their their realm of, of influence. Well, Jeff, you mentioned a little bit about um, oil prices earlier, I believe, and I mean they're elevated now, and we've seen them come down off their highs a little bit. Um, I know that a lot of people are feeling that impact at the pump. Where do you see oil prices going, and what how's that going going to impact the? Uh, economy going forward. Yeah, I th- you know, I think the the fact that we're starting to see a little bit of moderation in, you know, in that in that space is a good thing. So for example, you know, in the middle of June, you know, according to uh AAA, the national average for a gallon of gas was over 5 bucks a gallon. Mm. It just just, you know, that's that's tough for particularly, you know, the the lower income cohort of the economy. And that's that's just you know really a, a tough level. Since then, you know, right now as of today, national average is quote unquote only mm-hmm. four and four and uh, you know four seventy seven something like that, a uh, little over four fifty a gallon. Um, still very difficult, uh, you know, for the average and uh, lower income households. But we've seen a, a pullback from, you know, from the peaks of, you know, over five. That's a good thing. Um, I think the fact that the economy is is slowing, in essence, is a good thing because it, it takes off some of the pressure from the Fed and it takes off some of the pressure on oil prices, some of those uh, other uh, leading indicators like copper, copper prices. So in some ways, um, you know, I think a, a slowing economy uh is is truly that quote unquote Goldilocks you know scenario that we like to talk about? You know we don't want the economy too hot. You can't eat it. Something too hot. You don't want the porridge too cold. You want that porridge just right. Uh, that that soft landing uh, is certainly what what uh, everyone is hoping for. And the fact that you know, oil prices, gas prices, copper, lumber, etc., are uh, are moderating, pulling out from some of their highs uh, in the last month is certainly a good thing. Truly feels like we are at an inflection point, and the expectation for the back half of the year—that's that's what the that's what the big time investors are waiting to see some guidance. And we're going to leave it right there, Jeff. Thanks so much for your time, Jeff Roach, the chief economist at LPL Financial, joining us this morning on the show. And 
Hope you stay cool in Charlotte. Take care. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Jeff. We appreciate his time. And, you know, you think about that, and we really truly are. We've been talking about the markets a lot of the last few months is trying to keep a a sensitive thought process there towards the investors who are concerned about watching their account values go down. But, you know, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this in the fastest four, but we've we've offered some perspective quite frequently on the show, John. And when you look at where the S&P 500 is trading as we come on today, it's still about where it was in March of 2021, mm-hmm. okay? And if you go back to pre-pandemic levels, right before the start of this uh, economic shutdowns in March of 2020, we're up about 15% on the S&P 500. So that's two years. That's an average of 7.5% a year, right? So you're still tracking along historic norms if you pull that that perspective out a little bit. And then when you see and you hear from uh, Jeff Roach today talking about the underpinnings of the economy are still pretty solid. Not that they're not going to slow down, but we're not going off a cliff. Yeah. And I think that the, the perspective that our, our, our listeners and our clients need to have in this day and time is to really think about the broad perspective. You brought it up, Scott. Two years back, we're about where we were. And, and so maybe we've lost a little bit in terms of, of the ground that we had gained. But if you take things into perspective, first of all, the first perspective is you always have to think about equities being a long-term investment. Not a short-term investment, but a long-term investment. And long-term means uh, over 10 years. You really are investing for something that is into your future uh, in 10-plus years. And so for equities to be down right now, really is very uh, emblematic of what the equities markets always have done. And Tim, that's hard to to really kind of keep in the front, forefront of your mind when all day, every day, the news is telling you everything is really bad and, and things are going to hell in a handbasket and all that type of thing. Uh, it is hard sometimes to keep that proper perspective. Well, I think we have recency bias. We forget what happened a year ago, two years ago, five years ago, and, and so forth. And you know, anyone that ran through the crisis of 2007 to 2009, when the markets were down 45% or so, I mean, it's the next 10 years that they remember the market's going up three or 400%. And so right. it's, it is something that um, markets go up and down. It has been an extended period of time over the last six months. So it's been a little longer than anything that's happened over the last 10 years. But we also have to make sure that when we are investing, we are investing for the appropriate time frame that we have for our goals that we have in play. And that really comes down to having a plan for what you're going to use your money for. And Scott, in times like these, I really encourage our clients to think about not engaging in what I call portfolio destruction. What is portfolio destruction? It is selling something that is down just because it's down, right. because you are really destroying the value of what you've built at that particular point in time. Right. And so it is emblematic, again, of what we do here at GenWealth in terms of our bucketing strategy mm-hmm. to try to have assets that are ahead of the uh, of the equity bucket in the consumption curve, if you will, as we need money in the current time or, or maybe three, four, five years down the road, we're going to leave those equities alone and consume the fixed income assets, the real estate assets that are all lined up, so to speak, before that equity bucket and avoid that that portfolio destruction. 
We like to bring you education on the Get Ready for the Future show, and that's why we had Chief Economist Jeff Roach from LPL Financial on today to talk about the economy. But as we've talked about already since that interview, we're now transitioning from the economy to your economy. And that's what's important to keep your focus on and the plan that should be in place for you no matter where you are in your journey. And what's the end goal here? What are we trying to achieve We use the word retirement. We use it in client meeting rooms all the time. And every time I've said it about 12 or 13 times in a client meeting room, I'll inevitably go, you know, we really don't need to use that word. (laughs) Financial independence is the real thing we're seeking here. Retirement is the label that has been put on it. But there is a clear distinction. And if you think about that, how that resonates in your mind, retirement, what do you think about when you think about retirement? But if I say financial independence, does that change how you think about things a little bit. Well, in a recent TD Ameritrade survey of young Americans, ages 15 to 29, 57% of respondents judge themselves to be financially independent by virtue of being able to meet their financial obligations without help from parents, grandparents, or others. That's one definition. That's of called being off the payroll. You're, yeah, that, 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 that's being less dependent on one source, but more dependent on another, which is a paycheck, right? right? It's income. You are independently breaking away from your family. But what does financial independence truly mean later in life? And that means no dependence at all. You are self-sustaining your monthly and annual income and really ultimately your lifestyle. Yeah, and let's engage in, in just a little education here from a, a personal behavior standpoint. Uh, you know, Jeff talked about, he used the analogy, if you walk into uh, the movie theater, you don't really care how much the popcorn is. You're going to get some popcorn because the aroma has taken a hold of your brain and, and you're going to buy the popcorn. If it's 12 bucks a box, you're going to buy the popcorn. I think we've been engaging in that same type of behavior, especially in the housing market. Uh, you've seen people pay way, way over listing price for houses, get in bidding wars uh, for houses. You can't be financially independent and behave that way long term. Maybe you've got a little extra money. Maybe I would like to have that house. But I think you have to check yourself and you have to say, is this worth my financial independence? Is this worth me going out on a limb and erasing all the margin that I've built up? He talked about all of that $3 trillion of yeah. excess savings amazing. that consumers have right now. Folks, if you go and spend all that money, then your margin goes from like here to here, mm-hmm. like very, very narrow. And Tim, that's a recipe for disaster, whether you're talking about uh, personal finance, whether you're talking about uh, the finances of the country or anything of that nature. Uh, a depleting margin is really going to cause you problems. Right. And we've talked about how over the last, well, year, year and a half, as people have been able to get out and get going again after being sequestered in their house for a number of months, I mean, it is just a go, go, go and spend, spend, spend. And, you know, the government did send us a lot of stimulus checks and those stimulus checks did what they were supposed to for a lot of, you know, what their intention was, was to stimulate the economy. But it dropped a lot of excess money in in the um, hands of all the consumers. And so that has been pent up and some people are still using that money, but there's a lot more credit card usage going on too. And so at some point in time, when we have to start paying the credit card bill, or now we've got a new mortgage payment that we're going to um, have to be paying, there's going to be some margin, which the margin is the excess that you have income versus what you're spending each month. 
as that continues to shrink, we're going to have to make some big adjustments in what we do um, on a day-to-day basis. It may be not going out and eating as much or maybe not buying new clothes. There's a lot of things that it's going to end up impacting over these coming months. But it is also, I think, important to point out here that it's the, this financial independence is an idea unless you have a written plan, right? I mean, you we talk about making sacrifices and starting to save, starting to invest. I think a lot of people take those steps But they have no idea if it's the right amount of savings, if it's the right type of investment strategy, because that goal is so nebulous out there. Someday, I want to stop working. Someday, I want to be financially independent. But they don't really know how much they need to put back, how they need to invest, how much they need to have at a certain date and time when they want to do that to be able to make it happen. You've got to have that plan and you've got to be able to do those calculations and walk through that with a trusted financial advisor. But Scott, I think it's really very behavioral when we sit down and think about this. You know, you were around in the 80s. I was definitely around in the 80s. Uh, and and the, uh, the, the whole deal of the 80s, the whole theme of the 80s was the guy who dies with the most toys wins. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. And we know kind of that didn't work out real well. That's right. Well, we can't do that again. We can't run ourselves through $3 trillion of savings and go, look at all the stuff I got and think we're going to be financially independent. Yep. That's just not how it works. Mm-hmm. You've got to have some discipline. You've got to have some margin. Those two things together will actually get you started in toward that goal of financial independence. So unless you win the lottery or inherit a fortune, It's only going to happen if you're willing to go after it and work for it. You have to set the definitions first, right? What does it mean to you? And I think that's the takeaway for today's show, too, is in the midst of all this turmoil, the economy, which way is it going? The market's been down. Your your account values have been down. Your 401k not looking great right now if it's all in equities. And really, even if it's balanced, the, the bond market has been no place to hide either so far in 2022. But where are you ultimately going with this? What is the plan? And that means at what age do you want to be financially independent? That may not mean that you truly retire. That may not mean that you walk away from your job. It may mean you change jobs and take less income and work part-time to supplement what you have saved to provide yourself from your assets with a monthly income. But begin thinking about what it looks like, right? Your lifestyle. Some people have, I mean, we say it all the time, Tim, when we have people that come in and retire and have a very successful retirement with a half a million dollar portfolio. And then some people may come to us and have saved a million and they want enough income that you go, you're, you're probably going to work a little bit longer. Yeah, it really comes down to income as, as yep. opposed to how much you've actually accumulated. And where's that income going to come from? And I really think financial independence, as we had the TD Ameritrade um, um, study, study or survey, the, the survey that was yeah. done. I mean, different ages throughout your life, that definition can be much different for financial independence. And I think every stage that we go through, we need to have a goal for what that's going to look like, that what we consider financial independence, but ultimately retirement it would be the ultimate financial independence that you really don't have to work. You can do really what you want to do and still have the income and the, the resources to be able to do really anything you want to be able to do. Scott, I think one of the dangers that uh, of the time that we're in right now is not so much what's going on in the economy and the markets, because we all know that those are very cyclical. But I remember through the last downturn that we had, the big downturn that we had in, in 2008, 2007, 8, 9 period, time period, people stopped putting money in their 401k plans right. because they thought that it was such a bad investment. Mm. 
But the people who actually did put money in their 401k plans made out like a bandit. Mm-hmm. You've got to understand that concept of, of dollar cost averaging and being able to just sustain yourself all the way through a market cycle like this and actually take advantage of those lower prices by making investments into good quality, uh, great American companies that will eventually work their way into positive territory. That really is one of the big differentiators between what we're going through right now, as far as financial uh, upheaval is concerned. It's really not an upheaval. This is really just a very normal downturn in the market after a big bull run. But again, not being distracted by all the news and all the media and all the hype about the markets and staying focused on your plan gets you down that road. I think it's important to point out that if you are, we'll say, 10 years or less away from trying to achieve financial independence and you've been saving, you've been investing and you have some assets, but you have no idea if it's going to be enough to provide yourself a monthly income to truly be financially independent, When you consider all of your other sources like Social Security, when that kicks in, how much is that going to be? How much is your spouse going to earn if there's a pension? Creating a retirement income plan now gives you a chance to do something about it if you need to hit the accelerator in terms of savings rates, get more money into the market because it could be a very good buying opportunity. So if you're 10 years or less away from trying to reach financial independence, now is the time to create a written plan. You heard the bell. So it's time for our final thoughts, and Tim, we'll start with you. Right. I believe that financial independence really is begins with a declaration, and that declaration has to come from you. You're the only one that can decide um, what you want to do with your money and what your goals are and what financial independence actually looks like um, to you. And then with that declaration being made, it really comes down to, do you have a plan? We need to have a plan put together, and then we have to persevere and work toward that to make sure we have our financial independence that we have defined. Scott, we've talked about a lot on the show today. Jeffrey Roach, uh, obviously a very intelligent guy when it comes to the economy and what have you. And all that may be a lot of you know smoke and clouds around your head when you're trying to work through this. I think the key here today is that you don't have to go it alone. You can have a plan. You can have a coach. The greatest athletes in the world all have coaches, and they all tell them, Stay focused on what you're trying to do. They all get in their head and help them to think through the mental aspect of that. That's what you really need. That's the missing equation with most people is they don't have that financial coach to help them stay on track with what they're needing to do. And we certainly can help with that. We use the word plan a lot on this radio show because it is the most important thing to laying that map, putting yourself on the journey to financial independence. Maybe you think you have a plan, but does it cover all the bases it needs to cover we've got a free opportunity to get a download of 10 ways to rethink your financial plan and you can get it by texting the word plan to 501-381-5228 again the number 501-381-5228 or you can get it online just visit getreadyforthefuture.com forward slash plan Well, that's all the time we have for this week's Get Ready for the Future show. Again, our thanks to Jeff Roach, the chief economist at LPL Financial, for joining us. And we thank you for joining us as well. We'll talk to you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Get Ready for the Future show. 
If you enjoy hearing from the Gen Wealth team every week, make sure and subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help us get the word out on building toward financial independence, share the podcast with your friends and family. The Gen Wealth financial team is available to you 24 7 at info at getreadyforthefuture.com or call our offices at 866 653 PLAN. That's 866-653-7526. You should personally consult a financial advisor before making any investment, and no strategy can assure success. GenWealth Financial Advisors is an Arkansas-registered investment advisor with securities offered through LPL Financial. Member FINRA SIPC.